name is Eric Lockhart. It's good to be here this morning. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, I guess Jason didn't read, didn't give you the five-page biography that I sent, so I'll, I'll try to try to keep it short before we get started this morning. I know Jason uh, through some other pastors and uh, have come to know him, and I greatly appreciate him letting me come here this morning. By the grace of God, I grew up in a home where I was able to attend church and learn about Jesus at a very early age, and so uh, I came to to know him as my Savior at seven. Um, at 15, I began preaching in churches in North Alabama. At 19, I took my first pastorate. I've been doing that ever since. That was 13 years ago. I'll let you math majors figure that out. And then um, I got married 11 years ago, also by the grace of God. And uh, we have four boys. It's actually my wife's birthday today. But we have uh, four boys. Yeah. She's not here. But... <laughs> But I'll tell her you clap. Uh, <laughs> she wasn't clapping when she woke up this morning. <laughs> she said, tell everybody it's my 29th birthday again. But um, we, uh, which would be several times celebrated now. But we um, have four boys. Elijah's our oldest. He's nine. Noah is our second oldest. He's seven. We've got a four-year-old named Corbin, or Gavin. I got the name wrong. Got a four-year-old named Gavin. He's got... Nice red hair, but he'll tell you it's orange. And uh, we got a two-year-old named Corbin. And so they are all at home in Wake Forest, uh, attending our church there, Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. And uh, I am attending the seminary where I'm finishing off my uh, Master's of Divinity and then perhaps going after um, another degree. We'll see if uh, God gives me grace in that. But that's enough about me this morning. Let's go ahead and, uh, and get into the Word of God. If I haven't met you yet, Please see me afterward. I'd love to, to meet you, and uh, I'll answer any question you've got, I think. So, uh, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and let's pray this morning, and then we'll, we'll dive into the, to the message. God, we, we come to you this morning, and we say thank you for who you are. God, we, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us. But God, we do not forget that you are also a just God, and you are a holy God and that there are requirements that you have given us for living in this earth, Lord, that we're to be salt, that we're to be light, that we're to show your holiness, that we're to, to demonstrate your righteousness, that we're to, to be your justice to those around us. God, I pray this morning as we look at your word that you would remind us of these truths. God, that you would convict us where conviction is needed, that you would move us to repentance where we need to do so. And God, that you would affirm us when we're doing well. Father, may you be exalted in all that we do, and may everything we do be for your glory. It's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Amos chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. I love this passage for a few reasons. Uh, one, my wife would tell you I say I love every passage in the Bible. I, I hope that's true. Um, but also... It's one of those passages that a lot of people just haven't read. I'm, I'm seriously doubting that when you pick your, your Bible up for your quiet time, that Amos is the place you turn to that often. In fact, many of you are now turning to the table of contents to figure out where Amos is. And so that's all right. That's fine. The table of contents works. The thumb on the corner works. You get to Amos. And uh, as you get there, it's a very powerful book. It's a book of prophecy, but it's not a prophecy so much as foretelling or forth-telling, although it does, but it also, it, it just is a, a book of moral 
an ethical prophecy where it says, look, here's how you're living your life, and here's what God says about that. I found this uh, passage, I would say by mistake, but by the providence of God. I was a young guy in college and had a, uh, an assignment due, only I didn't realize I had an assignment due. And we were supposed to pick a passage that we would exegete uh, and, uh, and turn in an exegetical paper. And when I got to class, I realized everybody else was busy working on something. And I had no clue what they were doing. I'd probably been up late playing a video game or something. I don't know. And they said, are you ready? Are you ready to turn in your paper? Or to turn in the, the topic you're going to do your paper on? And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, we got to turn it in today. And so I quickly grabbed a list. I saw Amos 5, and I thought to myself, nobody's picking that. Uh, so I know that's still available. So I picked it, and by the grace of God, it's actually become one of the passages that he's, uh, he's used to, to convict me many times and has become one of my favorite passages. And so this morning, I want to share this word with you from Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. And I don't know how you do it around here, but I'm going to ask that you'd stand in honor of the reading of, of God's word this morning. Amos chapter 5, verse 18, if it's on your Bible or your iPhone, iPad, whatever you got there, it says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikkoth your king and Chiron your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. You may be seated. We start in, in chapter 5, so it's only, it's only right to kind of fill you in on what's been going on up to this point. We don't, we don't do that with any other book. Have you noticed that? With, with no other book do you say, you know what, I, I really recommend that you read this novel, but if you start in chapter 16, it's much better. We don't, we don't do that, but we do that with the Bible. We just randomly start in weird places. So let me fill you in on what's happened in the first four chapters of Amos. Amos is a, a book of judgment, and it begins by judging the nations. And it's judging the nations for the way that they've treated Israel. And I assume at this point in chapter 1 that the Israelites are pretty happy about the judgment of God that is coming upon their enemies. And they're, they're feeling very flattered by that. And then it takes a little bit of a switch and not only judges all the nation, but they, God judges Judah for the way they've been living. And maybe Israel goes, oh, okay, yeah, good, get Judah. They divided from us. Let them have it, Lord. And then in chapter 2, all the way through the rest of the book, he judges Israel. Judah and Israel, 
those who were called God's people do not escape God's judgment. They do not escape the judgment that, that God is bringing upon them. Why? Because even though they claim to be the people of God, they live like pagans. Even though they took pride that God had called them out, they live like everyone else around them, in the same sins of idolatry, in the same sins of injustice, in the same sins of lack of righteousness. And God is saying to them, just because you go by my name does not mean you escape my wrath if your lifestyle doesn't match up to that which you claim. Sadly, today we have, we have similar people in our churches. In fact, if we're honest, many times we have ourselves been those people. We call those people hypocrites. And God, Amos reminds us that God is not duped. He's not deceived. And His judgment will be just. And His righteousness will be seen. Not only on those who flat out deny God with their words and their mouth. But also, uh, and their actions but also on those who claim God with their mouth, but deny Him in their actions. So Amos chapter 5, when we get to verse 18, he says, Why are you waiting on the day of the Lord? Why do you, why do you long for that day? It's not going to be a day of, of, of light. It's going to be a day of darkness. You see, the day of the Lord is when, when the Lord was, was going to reveal Himself. He's coming back and... He was going to bring victory for His people and destruction for His enemies. In one sense, we understand this to be with when Christ comes, don't we? we? We understand that Christ comes and He lives the perfect life for us and He becomes our substitution upon the cross. He bears the wrath of God that was due us as He died for our sin. And as He dies there and then raises again from the dead on the third day, praise the Lord, when that happens, He brings victory to all those who believe in Him and all those who are, who are called by Him. And He also brings defeat to all those who oppose Him. It is at the cross that we see the ultimate victory for God's people and the ultimate defeat of God's enemy. Death could not hold Him. Sin could not contain Him. He rose victoriously. We, we see that there and so we understand it. But yet in another sense, we're still waiting on the day of the Lord, aren't we? He, he rose and He ascended into heaven. And when He ascended into heaven, He made the promise that He would return. And so we, we wait for that. We're waiting for the day when the sky will part and, and Christ will appear and He will gather all of us who are His children to Himself and we will go and we will dwell with Him for all of eternity. I'm going to back up because you guys are out there. It's early, I get it, it's Sunday, it's a beautiful day outside. But you didn't catch that because that would get an amen if you caught it. And so I'm going to, I'm going to just back up, so give you another chance, because I, I understand how that goes. So you see, one day the, the eastern sky is going to part, and Christ is going to appear, and He's going to gather all of us who are His children, and He's going to bring us with Him to dwell with Him for all of eternity. Amen. Now you're catching. There you go. And on that day is ultimate victory for us. Death is defeated finally. There's no, there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow, there's no more sickness. The, the curse of sin has been removed in total on that day. 
And on that day, we dwell with him for all of eternity, and we await that. But that day is a day of damnation for all those who do not believe in Christ. All of those who have wavered upon who Christ is, who have not stood by Him, who have not stood under the blood of Jesus, who have not trusted Him to be their Savior. As much as a glorious day as it is for those of us who love Jesus, what a horrible day it is for those who, who despise Jesus. And let me stop here for just a minute and say, brothers and sisters, if we believe that, how much more so should we be urged to proclaim the Gospel? to all who have not heard the message of Jesus, that they might come to know Him as Savior and be saved from the damnation booth. So on that day, it's going to be glorious. But here's, here's the thing. Let's be honest. So we're, we don't know each other that well, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope. And so let's just be honest with one another. We all expect that day to be good for us. I mean, well, yeah, yeah, it's going to be bad for other people. But we expect that day to be good for us. When the eastern sky parts, especially as Baptists, the Bible says dead in Christ are going to rise first, so we've got a front row seat up. So that was a joke. You got it. But, uh, but we, gotta, we got all that. So we, we expect that to be a good day for us. Guess what? Israel expected that the day of the Lord would be a good day for them too. And the message of Amos that God gave to him comes and it says this, why are you waiting on the day of the Lord? That's not going to be a good day for you. That's not going to be a day of light. That's a day of darkness. He's saying, listen to me. You keep saying I'm waiting on the day of the Lord. And he's saying, you don't need to wait on the day of the Lord because you're not going to enjoy the day of the Lord. On that day, there will be no escape. On that day, it'll be as if you escaped a lion just to meet a bear. On that day, it'll be as if you escaped the lion and the bear and you got home and you said, whew, and a snake bites you. There is no escape. What God is saying is, there is, there is no hiding from me what you are doing. There is no escape of your actions. I am not a God who is duped, a God who is deceived. God's saying, listen people, I'm not clueless. I know what's going on in your lives. And because I know what the fruit of your life is, I'm telling you, that's not a day you need to long for. Many of us, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we would hear the Word of God, even in our own lives today, saying, why are we rejoicing about the day when the Lord comes? Because for many of us, though we claim repentance, we have not kept the fruit that, that shows that repentance. And the day of the Lord will not be a good day for us and should be a day that is met with fear and trepidation because our lifestyle has not matched our words. And we see that with the people of Israel. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Let me, let me read this to you. Our verses 6-8. through eight. Let's see what the people of God were doing in those days. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. But because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside 
every altar on garments taken and pledged, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Let me tell you, this is not the way the people of God act. This is not the way the people of God treat Him. This is not the holiness and righteousness that is seen within the people of God. In fact, this is one of those things where we all go, oh, that's not good. We know, we know this is not right. It's kind of like a, when, what's it called? The VMA? Is that right? Something music thing? I don't know. But that young lady, Miley Cyrus, who got bashed by all those people for whatever nasty thing she did on TV. But what amazes me is how much people will bash her for that and then turn their channel to something horribly grotesque that profanes the name of God just as well and laugh and call it entertainment. Right? We, we know these things. We know this is not the way the people of God acts. And God is saying to them, or says to them in chapter 4, after He gives this indictment, He says, I called you back time and time and time again. But sadly, in chapter 4, five times, we see this horrible phrase, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So we, so we see the people of God, the people who are supposed to be the people of God, and they're acting this way that we know is horribly grotesque and, and, and is a, a, a blight, blight on the holiness of God and, and speaks poorly of His reputation and doesn't reflect His character at all. And we see that in these people, and we think to ourselves, why don't they repent? I mean, God even says, I tried to call you back, and yet they did not repent. Do you know why? Because they had a false sense of security. They had a false sense of security. They thought they were okay. They believed everything was fine. That's why they were waiting for the day of the Lord, isn't it? Because they thought, oh, this is going to be a great day. They, they thought they were fine because they had a false sense of security. They were basing their security upon the fact that they were the people of God, that they were by, by ethnicity. They were Israel, God's chosen people. And God is saying, just because you were born Israel will not save you. In fact, if you want to read on that, go to Galatians. Read, especially in Galatians in chapter 3. And Paul explains to us that not everyone who is born of Israel is Israel. And not everyone who is born of Abraham is Abraham's seed. In fact, there is one seed, and his name was Jesus Christ. And all who come under Christ are those who are Abraham's children. And he's saying, look, you're not going to escape just because you have this false sense of security, but they had a false sense of security because they thought they were the people of God and because they claimed the name of God. If we would put it into modern day terms, they went by the name Christian and they said, Lord, Lord. And so they believed they were okay. Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23 gives a stark reminder to all of us. I pray that it jars us every time we read this. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness saying, Lord, Lord, 
but not doing what the Father had commanded. Sounds a lot like what was going on in Amos, doesn't it? They were saying, Lord, Lord. They were doing all the religious things, but they weren't living. And because of it, there will be no light for them on the day of the Lord. There's no escape. Their false security will be exposed and shattered. But we look at that and we say, well, surely they they had to know that they were sinning, right? I mean, how do you do those things and not know? Some of us could, could teach a class on that. All of us at some point have been guilty. In fact, the more we grow in Christ, the more we realize how sinful we were before. Isn't that true? Isn't there, aren't there sins in your life that even just now you've come to realize, man, I, those things are sinful. And I did that all those years without even realizing that that was wrong. I did that all those years without it even dawning upon me that this is not the way that it should be. And then all of a sudden, as you continue to grow in Christ, as you continue to mature in Christ, not only do you become filled with His righteousness and holiness, but as that happens, it exposes the sin that's there, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, it's no longer just the actions that we're concerned with, but our motives come into question. And we begin to realize these things, and yet they, they didn't realize it because they had their false sense of security that was based upon false standards. I want to tell you something this morning. If you're Baptist, and I praise God you are, I joked with someone earlier today, most of you sit five pews and back, so I know you're Baptist. Um, the only thing missing is a potluck afterward. I don't know if that was on the schedule or not, but if we could get that in, that'd be good. Um, but one of the things we proclaim, one of the things we stand upon, is that salvation comes by grace and grace alone. It's not by works. But let me tell you, one of the ways that we act is that salvation comes by works. And this is exactly what the the Israelites were doing. It's not that they didn't know the sin they were doing. It's that they knew full well the religious things they were doing. Look at at verses uh, 21 through 27. Let's read these again. This is God talking. I hate... I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assembly. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Your version may say, I will not smell them. Literally in Hebrew it says, they are a stench in my nostrils. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's just stop there. It goes on in 25 and 27. It says, did you bring me the sacrifices in the wilderness? And it exposes that they're actually um, practicing idolatry in those verses. But notice what, what God is saying here. He's attacking their worship. He's just attacked their security. And now He's attacking their worship. And that's not by accident. He knows where their hope is lying. He knows the standards upon which they're basing it upon, right? He's saying, you have a false security because you believe you're doing good by this worship. Now imagine the shock. Would, would you just imagine that if we had just uh, finished singing right here and praising God and, and giving our offering, and even in the middle of my sermon, God just shows up and says, I just want to let you know, I hate this. 
and your offering, uh, you can have it back. I don't even want it. I despise it. And your preaching, and your singing, and your drums, good job by the way, and your piano, good job by the way, all of that, choir, you did great, all of that, horrible, sounds like noise in my ears. What a shock that would be to us, wouldn't it? I pray that would be a shock to us. If we're expecting that, there's something wrong. And yet, this is what God says to them. And the things they were doing were good, weren't they? They were things that God had affirmed, not only affirmed, but God had instituted. Why did they have feast? Because God told them to have feast. They, they weren't just having them because they wanted to. In the book of Leviticus, it says, have these feasts. This is what you're going to do. He even goes through a long ordeal of how they're supposed to do it. And all of us in our day and age who live under the blood of Christ, who have ever read that, say, thank you, Jesus. We don't have to remember all of that. But all of that goes on. He says, this is what you do. Why did they offer sacrifices? Because He told them to. He said, look, in order to appease my wrath, here's what you do. And He set up a whole sacrificial system. He had animals. He had grain offering. He had, he had animals for the poor in case they couldn't afford the things that were needed. God thought through it all. No coincidence there. No amazement there. And he, and he gave them the system. And He even said, when you do these things, they will be like a sweet aroma to Me. But now as He speaks to them, He says, they stink. They're a stench. I can't stand them. I don't want to hear them. I don't want to see them. I don't want to smell them. Take it all away. I hate your worship. But the worship is what they were banking on. They were doing the right thing. Can we, can we put it into today's term? They were church members. And they'd been on the roll for a long time. They sang in the choir. They played the music. They preached the sermon. They taught the Sunday school. They put money in the plate every Sunday. They not only tithed, they gave above tithing, which means they were doing better than most Southern Baptists, who by the way, 80% of don't tithe at all. And if that's you in this room today, repent. But they were doing that. And doing better. And God says, I hate it. Why? Because their life didn't match what they were doing in this service. Their life didn't match what was happening during the worship. The rest of the week, they lived like pagans. They were showing favoritism to the rich. They were neglecting the poor. They weren't taking care of those whose injustice was being done toward them. They were worshiping idols. They were, they were doing all of these things that are horrible and despicable and, and speak horribly about the name of Christ, the name of God. But they thought... It'd be like we're saying, you know what? I can live, I can live like a, a pagan. I can live like, like a, a member of the kingdom of hell all during the week. But if I just show up on Sunday, say I'm sorry, put some money in the plate, sing some songs, and maybe even teach a class, God will say, oh, good for you. It doesn't work that way. 
Brothers and sisters, if that's your mindset, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to realize this is not the God we serve. We don't serve the God Cayune and Sikuth, who could easily be appeased by sacrifices. We serve a God who says, I will be Lord of your life or I will not be Lord at all. I will be Lord of everything you do. Every day, every hour, every minute, every second belongs to me. And the way you live your life on Monday ought to be exactly the same way you live your life on Sunday. And if you don't live like that Monday through Saturday, He doesn't give two beans about what you do on Sunday. He's not interested because our lifestyle, our worship is not relegated to this service. It is our lifestyle that is our worship. And it is our lifestyle that allows us to come in and worship. If you're not praising God and living for God during the week, friend, you're not worshiping on Sunday morning no matter how loud you sing. If you're not living and and striving for God during the week, you're not giving God glory on Sunday morning no matter how much you teach. No matter how much you put in the plate. You can't buy God off. You can't do enough good to appease Him. He's saying the way that you live your life must reflect Me. And herein lies the problem, isn't it? Isn't it? Herein lies, herein lies all of our problem. Verse 24, listen what the requirement is. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Roll down like waters reminds us of a flood. And those of us, I, uh, I served for a few years as pastor in, in eastern North Carolina, a little town called Windsor. And all of us over in Windsor out there by the coast understand the danger of floods and the destruction that it brings. And, uh, and you know, there's tsunamis and all that across the world that we see and hurricanes. And, and we, under, we understand that destruction. And here's the picture he's giving of justice. That justice in our life moves in like that. That justice just overcomes every other aspect that's around. And righteousness, like a never, like an ever-flowing or a never-stopping stream, righteousness is always present in our life. Well, that, that's actually the problem, isn't it? Because uh, unless you, you know, are always doing right, you, uh, you don't match up to this. And if you're always doing right, you probably deserve to be up here preaching more than I do. Because I'm not. As I read this passage, I realize, oh man, God, justice isn't always in my life. And righteousness, sometimes when I'm flipping the TV, or sometimes when the ref blows the call, righteousness isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Sometimes when the fish gets off the hook, or any of those things, when the wife does what the wives do. No. <laughs> or vice versa, husband. <laughs> sometimes it's not, more often vice versa, but sometimes it's not righteousness that comes to mind. We're not just people. Even what we call justice really isn't justice. It usually somehow benefits us more than it benefits anybody else. And we're, not, we're not righteous people. Scripture says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. 
And this is the problem, isn't it? The problem is that if we're honest with ourselves, we are the hypocrites. We are the ones who claim God on Sunday and often don't live like it during the week. So what do we do? Do we just try harder? I guess we could, we could preach that this morning. I could stand up here and pound the pulpit and tell you to do better. Tell myself to do better. But doing so would just lead us back to this same point, wouldn't it? Because anything that we do that's not done in faith is a sin anyway. So it just leads us right back to where we are. So what do we do? We thank God for Jesus Christ, who is just, who is righteous, and who has placed His justice and His righteousness upon us that we may have it and that we may show it. Let me read to you. I'm going to read to you some, some more Scripture right now. And this is the last point. You're going to get a lot of Scripture in this last point, and then we'll make some application and we'll be done. The Bible says this in Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. As one who from, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. That has led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered for the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I want you to, to see this, that this is talking about Jesus Christ. This is talking about our Savior. This is talking about Him 
dying on the cross for our sin. And I want you to see this. The greatest injustice in all of history occurred at the cross. The greatest injustice in all of history occurred at the cross. We, we get all in an uproar over social injustices, and believe me, we should even more so, church, than what we do. But we need to realize the greatest social injustice occurred at the cross when the spotless Lamb of God, who had done no wrong, had never sinned, was crucified and killed. An innocent man died. The only innocent man in all of history murdered. That's injustice. But not only was injustice at the cross, but mercy was at the cross. Because He was not killed by man. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. When you read the Bible... This becomes evident. God killed His Son so He wouldn't have to kill you and me. Let that sink in. That's a hard statement. God killed His Son so He wouldn't have to kill you and me. It pleased God to crush Him because He knew the victory that was coming. Because He knew that by His stripes we are healed. Because He knew that He bore the wrath and the sin due us, and by His sacrifice we have salvation. There is no salvation aside from Jesus Christ. And it is only by Jesus that we are saved. And when we are saved, the Bible tells us that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that He who knew no sin became sin. That we that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's at the cross that righteousness finally meets us. It's at the cross that justice is finally seen for us because the wrath of God was just in, in condemning the sin and the Son took the sin upon Himself and gave out mercy and gives out righteousness because as He took our sin, He gives us righteousness. Do you know there's no one in this room who's holier than anyone else in the eyes of God? All of us who are believers in Christ, I don't stand here because I'm a higher level Christian than you. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a bad Christian. There's immature Christians. There's Christians who need to grow in their faith. And there's Christians who are growing in their faith. All of us ought to be growing in our faith. But we're all covered by the same blood. And we're all cloaked in the same righteousness. And any righteousness that I have is the righteousness that Christ gave me. And any justice that I display is the justness that, that Christ gave me. So what happens is, as Christ covers us with His righteousness, He redeems us, and something inside of us begins to change, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians 5.17 The old creature dies, the new creature comes. The Spirit lives within us, and Galatians 5.16-24 teaches us what? that the way we begin to act is different than the way we did because the Spirit bears fruit within us. It's not your fruit, Christian. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And in doing so, it reminds us of Ephesians 2, 8-10, through 10, that for by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. But what follows in verse 10? We were created to do good works 
in Him. You see, when we're saved, when we're, when we're Christians, here's what happens. We, we can't do justice and we can't do righteousness. And so Christ comes and He dies upon the cross because we couldn't do that. No matter how much law was given, we couldn't live up to it. And beyond that, Galatians tells us that the law couldn't save us even if we could live up to it. But we could not. We couldn't do justice. We couldn't do righteousness. Christ died for us. And in dying for us, He gives us justness. He gives us righteousness. He gives us mercy. And then He begins to produce that in you and me as we grow in Him. So we have three, three, less, three steps of accountability or application today. One, I encourage you to examine yourself. Often when we listen to messages like this, you're thinking of somebody else who you wish would hear it. Or you're thinking, man, I hope they're paying attention. Man, I hope you're paying attention. I hope you're, you're listening. I hope I'm listening to what God is saying. This was a rough week on me, I'll tell you that. Uh, you you, you got to get an hour. i got seven days of it. Uh, we go through all of this. And Scripture says, examine yourselves. How are you living? Are, are, you, are you living what you claim to believe? Are you? How's that going? Is there consistency between what we see here and what we see during the week? Is what you're watching reflective of the holiness in your life? Is what you're saying reflective of the righteousness? Let me make this statement to you. If you're here and you don't know Christ, the answer to that is no. You're, you're not. You're not living righteous, just lives. You can't. Scripture says you need Christ. If you're here and you don't know Him, the next step of application for you is to come forward in a minute when we, when we pray and then sing and say, I want to know Christ. I want to know more of Him. But if you're here and you say, I know I am a Christian, but I also know I've been a hypocrite, the next step of application for you is that you, you repent. You repent and you, you go before God and you say, God, thank You that even on the cross this was covered. Help me in Your grace to bear the fruit that keeps with repentance. Help me to grow in that. And that's our, our second step, right? Number two is accountability. Ladies, you need to find a, a godly woman who you can invest your life in. Men, you need to, to find a godly man. And let me... I'll get on a brief soapbox and I promise I'll get off it quickly. But this is the problem with us separating generations so much. We don't get to see Titus 2 played out in our churches where older men and older women of God take those who are younger women and younger men and teach them the ways of God the way that Scripture tells us to. I want to encourage you, you need to find somebody in your life you can be accountable to. Because if you try to bear that burden all by yourself, you're just going to keep ending up in the same spot you're at. You need somebody who will hold you accountable and say you need to, to follow through and live for Christ like you proclaim. Part of that may mean you need to join this church. Maybe you've been coming here for a while and you've never joined. And you think, I don't know if I need to join. You do. And today may be the day you need to join. That you need to submit your life and your, fam and your family to the authority and also the accountability of this church. It may also be that all of us just need to stop and pray about Romans 12, 1-2. Which says that we present our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable before God. And this is our spiritual act of worship. This morning as we sing and as 
people come forward or maybe you pray where you are, would you pray that God would let that be true in your life? That this week, your spiritual act of worship would not be what you're doing today, but the way you live your life through the rest of the week.